0: This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Our special guest this week is Dr. Gregory Petzko. He's at Harvard Medical School. He's a researcher, biochemist. He's held a number of positions in the medical world over the years. His specialty is something that people fear as they get older, dementia, most specifically Alzheimer's disease. Petzko makes the point that we've made very little progress fighting Alzheimer's since Dr. Alzheimer's discovered this disease about over 110 years ago. Why haven't we made progress? What hope do we have now? The news actually is good. We're finally getting in the right direction. But first, my special reads of the week and what's ahead. This time, we're combining both. Why? Because of the Christmas season, So instead of talking about unemployment numbers, unemployment filings, Brexit, North Korean missiles, and the like, we're gonna recommend a couple of things. One you can find on YouTube. It's called A Child's Christmas in Wales. It was written by Dylan Thomas, a Welsh poet who died decades ago, sadly at a young age, from alcoholism. But hear his reading of A Child's Christmas in Wales. It is stirring. And of course, you must read Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge, Tiny Tim and the like. And you'll also be amused, go online and find commentary. Was Ebenezer Scrooge really as bad as Dickens made him out to be? That'll give you a little diversion. Another thing to watch over this coming week for the holidays is a documentary. You can find it online, you can also find it in theaters. It's about the British Army in World War I. It's called, They Shall Not Grow Old. It was put together by Peter Jackson, most famous for Lord of the Rings. Jackson's grandfather died at a young age from a gas attack in World War I, but what he's done here was take footage of the war and the voices of soldiers of the war that were recorded by BBC in the early 1960s. He's taken this footage and with great technology, restored it to color and to the sounds and voices of that period. It's a startling achievement and gives what life was like in that hell of World War I, which as Churchill rightly said, was Armageddon and profoundly changed the world. And finally, on a lighter note, Forbes this week is giving everyone the week off. Nothing much gets done between Christmas and New Year's. It's a paid holiday. Hope other companies do the same thing. Because you're not doing much work, don't feel guilty. Just enjoy it. And finally, those wonderful words, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And now, my conversation with Dr. Petzko. Well, today we're pleased to have a special guest, Dr. Gregory Petsko. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we get into uh, the topic of today, the great uh, Thing that people still inordinately fear, like we did cancer 40, 50 years ago, before we really learned more about it and what we could do about it. Uh, a little bit about your background, uh, you uh, before we get to how you got into uh, Alzheimer's and other neurological disorders, what you rightly call the soul eater, Alzheimer's. Um, you also have done work on obviously Parkinson's, ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, but uh, you're a biochemist. Uh, you're a member of the National Academy of Sciences, National Academy of Medicine, and the American Philosophical Society, which we'll touch on in a minute. At the moment, you're Professor of Neurology at the Ann Romney Center for Neurological Disorders at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston. Before that, you were Director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Institute of the Weill Cornell Medical College. You have a uh, distinguished wife, Lori Glimpshire, who was dean of Weill Cornell and is now CEO of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. You went to Princeton, and you majored in classical literature.
1: Originally, I switched to chemistry at the end.
0: And uh, you were a Rhodes Scholar. But when you were going to Oxford, you wanted to study epic poetry, and you ended up with molecular biophysics, enzymes, and the like. So how did you go from uh, Homer to... uh, molecular biophysics.
1: (laughs) So the good thing about a Rhodes Scholarship is it allows you to study anything you want for two or three years. And I decided, having switched to science as an undergraduate, that I would switch back to classical literature for a while and redo my first love, as it were. Um, So I applied to work with a man named Maurice Bauer, Sir Maurice Bauer, who was at that time the leading classicist in the world and was the vice chancellor of Oxford University. Which
0: means he was running the place.
1: He was running the place, and he, he accepted me. And so that was great. And At that time, all the Rhodes scholars traveled to England together, the 32 of them in the United States, the uh, by Elizabeth. ship. On the, exactly, the QE2. And that took about eight days, And about somehow in the middle of the voyage, I don't know exactly when, Maurice Bauer dropped dead of a heart attack. And I arrived in England with nobody to work for. So I had done research work at Princeton with a man who was British. And so I called him up from the United States and I said, I got nobody to work for, what should I do? And he said, you should go over and see David Phillips in the Molecular Biophysics Program and do Molecular Biophysics. And because I was running out of coins to put in the phone machine, I said, okay.
0: <laughs> yes, I have to remind our uh, listeners that uh, once upon a time, you had uh, pay phones and you <laughs> That's used <right>. coins. <laughs> and uh, before we get into how you became interested in uh, neurological disorders, uh. Walk us through how you feel you're a better scientist and others would be better scientists by not getting so siloed, but also having an appreciation in the study of humanities as you did at Princeton and
1: afterwards. I think that's a wonderful question, Stephen, and and thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it. I currently hold an appointment at Harvard Medical School in Brigham and Women's Hospital in a subject in which I have never taken a course. Well, often in entrepreneurship, it's the outliers who
0: see things that others don't and make the big breakthrough. So we don't hold that against you here. <laughs> well, And I
1: think you put your finger on one of the reasons I've been somewhat successful is I've always tended to come in from the outside to something, and that's never bothered me. It hasn't bothered me that I'm not formally trained in something. If it interests me, I like to try to pursue it. I think there were two things I took away from my education and two things that I would urge anybody who's in the educational process today to try to take away from theirs. One was I came away still loving to learn. They didn't beat it out of me. Lord knows they tried, but they didn't beat it out of me.
0: Did they make you take
1: uh, organic or inorganic chemistry? And They did, but they also made me take sociology, anthropology, politics. This was a good thing. But the other thing I took away from my education was the belief that I could learn, that if there was something that I wanted to learn about, I would be able to learn about it. It might take time, might take a lot of hard work, but that I could do it. And so I haven't hesitated to move into new fields and to bring with me the stuff that I knew before. So that, that's the first thing I'd say about my education. The second is I think the humanities have helped me more than the science that I, that I took. I mean, now there were things I didn't take that I wish I had. I was department chair at Brandeis University for a while and I wish I'd taken taught abnormal... there what, 12 years? Yeah. And I wish I'd taken abnormal psychology in college. That would have helped a lot as department chair. But never mind that. The point is that um, I think there were courses like... I'm trying <laughs> not to laugh. But I'm... <laughs> <laughs> there were courses like English literature and history that taught me a lot about not just how to write, which is very important, by the way, in almost anything you do, but also how to think critically about the things I read. And I learned more about that from those courses than I ever did in science courses. Uh, There were also things I learned about science itself from studying history and so forth that you didn't get in science courses. Such as? Such as the 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 disgraceful episodes in the history of the United States, where we did things like infect black people with infectious diseases, and oh, not the whole tell eugenics them. movement. Yeah, and all of that. And it's important to me as a scientist to have my science informed by knowing about things like that.
0: And uh, Norman Borlaug, who won the Nobel Prize years ago, uh, Nobel Peace Prize for his uh, work on. Uh, the Green Revolution, made a point to college students underlining what you said. He said, don't specialize too early. In his case, it was agronomy. But he said when he made these breakthroughs, he had to draw on economics, politics to make it happen. And he said, you have to be prepared for the unexpected, that you have to draw on aspects you never thought you might have to draw on. Couldn't put it better myself. And uh, so let's get to uh, the the neurological disorders. You mentioned Alzheimer's, the big one. There are other forms of dementia, Lou Gehrig's disease, Parkinson's. You did the ice bucket for ALS uh, several years ago, you and your wife.
1: And my dog. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. We use warm water for the dog.
0: Yeah, uh, (laughs) good. So the dog didn't bite you. Good. No. Uh, But uh, let's get to uh, the nature of uh, the disease. Uh, As you pointed out, Alzheimer, especially... Is a top is the top killer in the UK. Maybe you can touch on they may be measuring things better than we are, but also what is uh, humbling here is, as you pointed out, there's no prevention, no treatment, no cure, and no way to slow the disease down. Uh, walk us through the dimensions of the disease: five and a half million Alzheimer's patients today. You say in a few decades it's going to equal the population of Illinois. Walk us through the dimensions and why it goes beyond just the patient. You've got caregivers. It's, a, it's going to be just the expense alone is going to
1: break the country. That's exactly right. So at the moment, the best guess is about 5.8 million Alzheimer's patients in the United States. Uh, this will increase to close to 14 million by 2050. That is, as you say, more than the population of the state of Illinois, which I remind our listeners include Chicago. And in the rest of the world, same thing is happening. This is because of the aging population. And so you can project out to the end of the century. By the end of the century, and there are people today who will be alive then, maybe quite a few it's estimated there will be 300 million Alzheimer's patients in the world. That's the population of the United States. If dementia as a whole were a country, it would be the ninth largest country on the planet. So that's a colossal problem. And for the U.S., it represents a colossal burden. So right now, every year, Dementia care costs this country $290 billion. That number will swell to over $1 trillion by the middle of the century. I don't care whether you're in favor of Medicare for all or a totally privatized health insurance system. No matter what we do with health care, the system will go bankrupt from this one disease unless we find a way to treat it prevent it, slow it down.
0: You make the point that the fastest growing demographic group in this country and perhaps the world, people over the age of 80.
1: Yeah. It used to be rare to see people over the age of 80. You would have their birthdays celebrated on television or radio in your community. When I was born, there were fewer than 2 million of them in the United States. Now there are about 12 million. And that number is going to swell dramatically to close to 40 million by the middle of the century. And remember that when you get over the age of 80, roughly one and a quarter to one and a third of those people will have dementia.
0: And you make the point about being a soul eater is that the disease, unless you're young, you get it early, is 10 to 12 years. And, and, and physically, you are in good shape until the end. And uh, that gives it a special dimension.
1: Yeah, it does. And and it's brutal for the families. R- remember that roughly 3 people take care of every one Alzheimer's patient. They're nearly always family members, so, two uh, women. F- uh,
0: when we get to 14 million, that means 40-50 uh, million caregivers. That's right. Virtually Staggering. A-
1: virtually every family in the country will be touched by this disease in one way or another. And those caregivers are exhausted emotionally, physically, financially from the disease, but for them, it's also heartbreaking because there is their loved one, and the loved one looks exactly like the person they knew and cared for for so many years cared about, and yet the individual is gone. The, the What made them a distinctive person has disappeared. As you say, the soul is gone. The soul is gone. Now, let's get to the challenges.
0: Amazingly, as you've pointed out, it wasn't until a few decades ago we even realized this was a disease. You cite a grandmother who just said that's part of the aging process.
1: It used to be called senility, and it was thought to be inevitable as you got older. We now know that's not true. It's a disease. It can be prevented. It can be cured. We know there are people, many people, who live into their 90s and are sharp as a tack. They, you don't have to get this disease. We spend
0: a few hundred million dollars a year on Alzheimer's research. AIDS, we don't want to cut back on that, but you make the point we spend five times as much on AIDS research, even though their population is one-fifth of the Alzheimer's population. Again, you've stressed the point, you're not cutting AIDS research, but why is so little resources being devoted to disease? As you point out, it's gonna hit every family in the country.
1: So it's getting better. The good news is over the last couple of years, um, Two administrations, both the Obama administration and the Trump administration, working hand-in-hand with a bipartisan congressional effort, have put more money into Alzheimer's disease research. So it's not quite as bad as the figures that I wrote a few years ago. It's now more like $2 billion or close to $2 billion that's being spent on Alzheimer's research, and in the current budget, it's supposed to go up a bit more. That's good. But remember that every year we spend $200 billion caring for Alzheimer's patients. So we're spending 100 times more on dealing with the disease than we are in trying to find a cure for the disease. So it's still not probably enough of an expenditure. But as to why it's taken so long even to get to that point in terms of spending, I think there are a number of problems, but one of the biggest ones. You put your finger on, was thought for a long time this wasn't a disease you could do anything about. And then the other problem, unfortunately, is to quote a well known author this is no country for old men or old women. Uh, Older people in this society are somewhat invisible. They don't have the kind of voices that healthy young people beset by a disease like AIDS were able to summon up and advocate for improved funding. Um, in terms of uh, research, this
0: gets to uh, Dr. Alzheimer himself, although, <laughs> Alzheimer, well over a hundred years ago. Describe the patient August Dieter and uh, what he de- w- what happened there, and uh, what he discovered, and then uh, we're still learning from uh,
1: Dieter. So Alois Alzheimer was a young neurologist in Germany when uh, a man turn of the
0: twentieth century,
1: right around 1900, 1905. When a man brought his wife to see him in his clinic, the man's wife was 51 years old. Her name, as you said, was August Dieter. And she had begun, and she put it eloquently herself, she had begun to lose herself. She not only couldn't remember things well, but she couldn't function cognitively. There were she was unable to join conversations. Her speech was had problems. She had difficulties in not just remembering things but finding her way around even familiar places. And what was striking about this to Alzheimer was he had seen similar things in patients suffering from what doctors in those days called senile dementia. But here was a woman 51 years old who had all of those symptoms and who told him that other members of her family had had them. In other words, this was a genetic case of the disease in a younger person. And Auguste Dieter was suffering from a, from a form of Alzheimer's disease called familial or genetic Alzheimer's disease that is inherited. And it often strikes early in the year 40s or 50s, and it progresses very rapidly. And sure enough, she and- was dead within six years.
0: And we don't yet know why with a younger person, why the disease is so much more virulent than when you're older.
1: We don't, but we know that if you do have early onset, it usually progresses faster. And by the way, that's true of almost every neurologic disorder like that. It's true of ALS. It's true of Parkinson's as well. Anyway, when Alois Alzheimer autopsied the brain of August Dieter, he found an amazing thing he found that there were stuff in her brain that shouldn't have been there. One were dense aggregates outside of the nerve cells of her brain of what looked like misfolded or jumbled up protein, kind of like spaghetti. We'll get in a moment to folded. Exactly. He called those plaques. Uh, we now call them amyloid plaques, but he called them plaques. Inside the nerve cells of her brain, he found another dense aggregate of what turns out to be a different protein, and he called those tangles. We call them neurofibrillary tangles. And those plaques and tangles are, to this day, the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. If on autopsy you find those things in the brain, then the diagnosis is Alzheimer's.
0: And relate the story about uh, the drunk trying to find his car keys and why you think we focus so much on the plaques and tangles and not recognize that's the result of the disease, not the cause?
1: That's a great question. So, Alzheimer noted in his paper in 1911, that's 108 years ago, he noted that the plaques in particular didn't seem to correlate well with the areas where August Dieter was losing brain cells and brain volume. And so, he wrote in that paper that he thought the plaques were a consequence of the disease, not the cause. But for the last 108 years, scientists have had exactly the opposite opinion for really no other reason than the fact that the plaques are right there, huge you can see and them. obvious. Yeah. And the the what you refer to is the old, uh, what psychologists call the streetlight effect. And what is, it's a, an error in, in reasoning that occurs. And that is based on the old joke about the drunk looking for his keys under a lamppost. A policeman comes along and says, what are you doing? And the drunk says, I'm looking for my keys. And the policeman says, I'll help you. Where did you lose them? And The drunk says, over there in that dark corner. The policeman says, well, why are you looking for them here under the lamppost? And the drunk says, the light's better here.
0: Right. Uh, why has it taken so long to move away from that? I mean, when you look at the history of diseases, we are We marvel in a horrified way with malaria, the biggest killer of all, Uh, why we never connected mosquitoes to the disease. It was vapors or something. Why in the scientific age for decades, right up to now, which gets to the 99.8% failure rate on drugs, we focus on the result and not realize something else might be at
1: work? So I think this may belong more in your line of work than in mine. I seem to remember that in economics, there is something called, maybe it's the sunk cost fallacy, right? The idea being that if you put a huge amount of investment into something, even if it seems to be failing, you can't bring yourself to admit that it was a bad decision. And so you just end up investing even more. Have I got that about right? You see it in politics too with failed programs. <laughs> there <Yes>. you know. go. <laughs> uh, well, scientists are not immune to this. We're human beings. And I think having invested a huge amount of time and effort In developing treatments that target the plaques, people were unwilling to admit that the plaques might be the wrong target and and tended to double down on more stuff in the plaques. And of course, part of the thing with science, especially with trying to cure a disease, is you can nearly always find more you can do that you didn't do uh, to make yourself think, well, only if we looked younger, in patients, or only if we tried a higher dose, or only if we'd followed it for longer. There's always a way you can convince yourself that you could still get a successful trial.
0: Now, for the layperson and understanding, as you see it, what goes wrong here, you point out, I'll call it a quality control machinery. You point out for 40 years, since for eons, that's what you could expect as a lifespan, But after the age of 40, something starts to happen and uh, the uh, quality control machinery doesn't work so much. You use the example of garbage trucks. Walk us through uh, graphically what, what, what is unfolding here as we
1: get older. So the first thing you have to realize is that nature doesn't care a whole lot about us once we stop being able to reproduce effectively. So, we're expendable. Yeah, <laughs> we, that's a, be, a crueler but more accurate way of putting it. <laughs> yes, we are. And um, so the situation is basically this as you get older, for reasons that are still not terribly clear, some of the things that worked well in your body when you were young don't work so well anymore. You you begin to wear out. And that isn't just true of your joints, for example, or your hearing. It's also true of the machinery inside the cells of your body. And one of those machines is a, a machine that is designed to survey the proteins in your cell and make sure they're folded properly. Every gene in your body codes for a protein, like hemoglobin, your blood protein. It's coded for by the hemoglobin gene. And in order to function, that protein has to fold up like an origami bird into exactly the right kind of shape. But folding an origami bird, if anybody's ever tried to do it, isn't that easy, and sometimes you can mess it up. And sure enough, proteins, when they fold, don't always fold right either. And so your body has quality control machinery that inspects proteins, and if it finds them misfolded, it takes them and puts them in one of two situations. One is it tries to refold them properly. Very clever. It's only like just
0: recycling. Dis- yeah,
1: only just discovered recently. And, and it works pretty well sometimes. But if that doesn't work, or sometimes even without trying it, protein goes into the trash can and gets degraded. In fact, it's more like a trash compactor or a garbage disposal. It really chews it up. The, uh,
0: compare the right fold to uh, a bird... when the lack of folding looks like a crunched up piece of paper.
1: Looks like a crumpled piece of paper, but a crumpled piece of paper that it turns out for some proteins, including the Alzheimer's proteins, has a very insidious property. That crumpled piece of paper, first of all, in large enough quantities, may be toxic to the cell. But second... That crumpled piece of paper has the ability to take a properly folded origami bird, unfold it, and make it look like itself. And, therefore, you begin to get aggregates of these crumpled pieces of paper building up in the cell. Again, the cell has some machinery to detect those and get rid of them. But, once again, that machinery doesn't work so well as you get older.
0: Uh You compare it to a truck driver. Hopefully, the truck driver takes the stuff to uh, the recycling plant rather than uh, the toxic garbage dump. Yep. Uh, You say we need more of those. You think part of the solution is getting more of those, what you call the truck drivers,
1: retromers. Walk us through that. Sure. So, if you're going to have things like garbage disposal or recycling inside the cell, you need trafficking machinery that move stuff around to proper places within the cell. You probably learned, if you're my age or somewhat younger, you probably thought of cells as being like bags of stuff, proteins, DNA, and so forth, just floating around in a soup, kind of like noodles in chicken soup. It's not like that at all. The inside of a cell is so densely packed with material, it's like— You've compared it to Times Square on New Year's Eve. Times Square on New Year's Eve is about exactly the packing density of the inside of a cell. And if you try to find a friend of yours uh, at Times Square on New Year's Eve, the only way you can do that is to give them a location. I'm going to meet you under the such-and-such sign or at this corner, and then you have to get yourself to that corner, and they have to get themselves to that corner. And that's trafficking. And it turns out that as you get older, one of the things that starts to go wrong is trafficking. You don't traffic things properly. And the inability to traffic things properly in nerve cells in the brain contributes to the buildup of toxic materials and the destruction of the nerve cells that you see in diseases like Alzheimer's disease. Our approach to trying to treat Alzheimer's disease in my laboratory in collaboration with the laboratory of Scott Small at Columbia University here in New York, not only a a collaborator but a personal friend uh, and the person who discovered the importance of trafficking in these diseases, a great scientist and a clinician scientist, Scott and I have been trying to correct the trafficking defect believing that if we can fix what's wrong inside the cell, the plaques will clear clear themselves because they're just the consequence of what's going wrong in the cell. And sure enough, in models, both in cells in culture and in some animal models, that's what we see. We see that if we fix the trafficking, the plaques are going to go away and the tangles also get better. So we think that approach, targeting what we believe is the real cell biology problem in the disease may be a more profitable line of attack than to go after the plaques, which, as I said, Alzheimer himself thought were just the consequence of the disease.
0: Um, So where should research money go? And this gets to uh, Port Orchard, Washington. (laughs) Uh, uh, Douglas Whitney, you say the most important patient in the world. Describe that and It's genetic. Maybe uh, you you talk about cells. Maybe there's other things we can do genetically. But describe uh, Douglas Whitney.
1: Absolutely. So uh, you may all think that the most interesting man in the world is the guy in the Mexican beer commercial. No, not true. The most interesting man in the world, I think, is Douglas Whitney of Port Orchard, Washington. Now, Port Orchard is a suburb of Seattle, and the Whitney family have lived there for quite a long time. And during that time, the Whitney family have had a terrible problem. Roughly one in every two of the Whitney's has died in their 50s from Alzheimer's disease because the Whitney's family has a mutation in a gene that guarantees you'll get Alzheimer's disease in your late 40s or early 50s and that you'll die from it very quickly. And if that sounds like August Dieter, The original Alzheimer's patient, it is same kind of mutation, okay? Slightly different, but very similar mutation. So, Douglas Whitney's older brother, I think it was, died of Alzheimer's disease in his 50s. His mother died of Alzheimer's disease in her 50s. Something like seven out of 12 of Doug Whitney's closest relatives have caught Alzheimer's disease early and died from it. That's awful business. Doug Whitney is my age, I'm 71. Doug Whitney has the mutation. Doug Whitney is fine. Something is protecting Doug Whitney. We don't know what. Maybe another mutation. Maybe another mutation. Okay. We don't know what it is yet. But if we could figure out what is protecting Doug Whitney, I mean, imagine, by all the laws of genetics and medicine, this man should have died 15 years ago. From Alzheimer's disease, he didn't get Alzheimer's disease yet. If Doug Whitney doesn't have Alzheimer's disease, you don't have to get it. I don't have to get it. Nobody has to get it. There will be a way to fix this disease. Maybe, maybe the approach that we're taking, Scott Small and myself, maybe that approach will work. Maybe other approaches will work. But I think understanding things like what is protecting people like Doug Whitney, there are other Doug Whitneys in the world, people who are not getting Alzheimer's, who really ought to be, then we have a chance, I think, to do something about this disease finally.
0: And in the case of uh, Douglas Whitney, you make the point. It's not that he works out more or that he does things differently that would account for uh, his avoidance of uh, Alzheimer's.
1: No, he's not in great shape at all, actually, <laughs> uh, in that respect. Uh, I don't think he particularly watches his diet. It certainly doesn't look like it. He's a, a nice person. I don't think he has much. I don't know about stress, but no, there's, there's nothing obvious environmentally. And remember, his whole family, which generally lived in the same area that he does and probably had similar diets, uh, one out of two of them get the disease. There's something else going on. As you say, it's probably another mutation. And if we could figure out what that was, then we'd have a valuable clue for not just how to treat the disease, but maybe how to prevent it.
0: So, what are we doing with the Doug Whitney's of the world? Are we doing gene sequence? How are we trying to discover the magic formula?
1: So, it's a good thing that Doug Whitney is a nice guy because I think scientists and clinicians have done everything to that poor man but split his atoms. They have sequenced his genome. They've done tests on his blood, and I mean, its he's probably been proked or prodded more than just about any patient in history. But it's very hard to find what's protecting him, because Doug Whitley is an end of one, okay? He's an N of one, a single patient. If I compared his gene sequence to mine or to yours, there'd be thousands of differences, and we wouldn't know which one mattered. If I compared it the sequence to any of his other relatives, there'd be thousands of differences and we still wouldn't know which one mattered. We have to find another person in his family who is protected like he is and compare those two gene sequences. That will help us home in on what really matters. And that's possible. Doug Whitney has three children. At least two of them have the mutation, but they're not old enough yet for us to know whether or not they're protected. If they are, if whatever's protected him is inheritable, then with an N of two, with two patients, we have a chance of finding out what it is. So we'll have to wait and and see uh, some time yet before we know whether that is a transmittable protection. Are there other
0: families like Doug Whitney or August Dieter around the world of people searching where uh, you can find that N2, N3, and see see, see what you come up with?
1: They're being searched for avidly right now. Uh, There are plenty of places, small pockets, where especially if there's a lot of inbreeding, you find whole bunches of people with genetic Alzheimer's disease. I should point out to the audience that genetic form of Alzheimer's disease is quite rare. Only 5 percent of all cases of Alzheimer's disease are inheritable. So if you have a relative, a mother or a father with Alzheimer's disease, for example, don't panic. Doesn't mean you're going to get the disease. There has to be a persistent pattern of inheritance for generations in your family, and it has to be traceable genetically, and that's rare. But there are places, there are villages in Venezuela, for example, and I think also in Colombia. Where there are a lot of patients with the genetic form of Alzheimer's disease, and these are now being studied intently.
0: You once called glaucoma Alzheimer of the eyes. Anything we can learn from that, it's treatable, that uh, might have some applicability. As an outsider, I'm sure many experts say no way, but you you look you look at things differently.
1: Yeah, I try to. Glaucoma is an eye disorder that tends to increase with age, just like Alzheimer's disease. And it turns out it, it in many cases, is caused by a misfolding of a protein. It's a different protein that in your eye that causes problems. And, and the way we connect these two things is the following One of the real risk factors for glaucoma, as you may know, is high blood pressure. Chronic high blood pressure is a huge risk factor for glaucoma. Well, guess what? It's also the biggest risk factor I know of for Alzheimer's disease. Something you can do every day to prevent Alzheimer's disease relatively—you can never prevent it absolutely, but you can reduce your risk dramatically for Alzheimer's disease—is to keep your blood pressure under control. If it's normally good, great, keep it that way. If it's high, get on medication to lower it. This will help both with your vision, as far as glaucoma goes, but it will also help with Alzheimer's disease. It's something that everybody can do. Do we know why there's that correlation? We don't know why very well. Um, There are some hypotheses being worked on in a number of labs, including actually mine, but we don't have a good explanation at the moment.
0: So while we can't prevent the disease, at least we can put it off
1: The the onset? I, I don't know if, I don't know if what we would do would be to delay the onset or merely statistically reduce risk on the part of a large number of people so that fewer get it. Um, I think it's hard to know that without a lot of significant epidemiological studies of people with different lifestyles, and, and those studies are being done. But, but in addition to keeping your blood pressure under control, we know that exercise helps. We know that not being obese helps. Obesity is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. We don't know why. And something I like: drink lattes. <laughs> yes, caffeine is a is a protective factor for Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows why that's true. There, are, or again, there are some hypotheses. So, if you want to pay Starbucks the hundred and fifty dollars or whatever they're charging nowadays for a latte, it's you at least have the knowledge you're reducing your risk for Parkinson's disease. But
0: don't file an insurance claim.
1: Yeah, I, I, exactly. Uh, I think though that. These things that we've talked about, keeping your blood pressure down, not being obese. Or as you say, avoid head trauma. Yeah, head trauma is a risk factor for Parkinson's. And avian flu. Yeah, you don't want avian flu. That's a risk factor for Parkinson's. Head trauma is a problem, of course, because if so, if you ride a bicycle or one of those skateboard things, for God's sakes, wear a helmet, okay? I wouldn't ride two yards without a helmet.
0: And staying mentally stimulated, you say, is helpful.
1: It's staying mentally stimulated is really helpful, especially new things. Giving your brain new things to think about makes a big difference. Get out of the rut. Now, for those of you who are listening to this podcast or regular listeners of this podcast, you're doing the right thing. Keep doing that. You're stimulating your brain mentally. Uh, That's a good thing to do. But look, you know, you should be doing all those things anyway. Even if they didn't reduce your risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, every one of the things we've been talking about helps you live a healthier, more interesting life. So you ought to be doing them regardless.
0: So uh, they should also subscribe to Forbes then, right? Stimulate the mind. The preceding has been a paid political announcement. <laughs> Finally, are the pharmaceutical companies getting more involved, even though they've been burned on the plaque and the, the
1: looking under the street so, so- lamp? Some have pulled out of this sector, unfortunately, but to their credit, a number of them have stuck with it despite huge losses financially from these failed clinical trials, hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. And we need them. It costs $500 to $700 million to develop a treatment for a disease like Alzheimer's. That's something the private sector can support Pharmaceutical companies have that kind of money to spend. They have to spend it. And we uh, in the academic community have to reach out to those people. One of the most important things I did when I started to work on these diseases was to partner with the private sector very early because developing treatments is not a job for amateurs. I'm sorry, Elizabeth Warren, but when you say that the federal government should get in the business of making drugs, I think you're wrong. The federal government is an amateur at making drugs. This is something professionals have to do. And the professionals are the pharmaceutical and biotech companies. And we in the academic sector have to partner with them early in our work so that we can deal with the real practical problems that we face.
0: Dr. Petsko, thank you so much. This has been fascinating and hopefully a spur to action. Uh, give us some closing words on uh, what we can do to get uh, more research more 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 brain cells focused on this.
1: <laughs> so, I think if you're a person who has young children and old parents, remember that you are unfortunately highly likely to become a caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's disease at the same time that you're trying to take care of younger children of your own. Something like a third of all Alzheimer's caregivers fall into that category. If you do, then I wish you would lobby your congressmen and women, your legislature. Talk to people everywhere about the importance of mobilizing efforts against this disease. We have got to get this under control by the middle of the century or we're all going to be up the proverbial creek without the proverbial paddle. And we need the help and support from people like yourselves. That's the first thing I'd say. Second thing I'd say is if anybody in a position of authority in companies, in the school system, in government, in policy, is listening to what I'm saying, please take this seriously. This is a coming epidemic that this country and most developed countries around the world are going to face over the next couple of decades. And we need the attention, the support, the effort of all of you to do something about that. And finally, if you're in a position to make significant financial contributions through foundations or as a private individual to biomedical research, let me urge you to do so. The federal government is finally beginning to put more money into research on these diseases, but for a variety of reasons that I don't need to go into, federal support tends to be somewhat conservative in the things that it does. Safe politically. Exactly. Much of the breakthroughs that we're talking about, including the breakthroughs in my own lab, have depended heavily on private philanthropy and foundation support. We need that to continue and to increase. This is a case where the world, the United States, is facing a huge problem. And you, as an individual, can make a real difference.
0: Well, finally, this gets to the fact we don't progress without new knowledge. And we get new knowledge through experimentation. Dr. Pretzko, thank you.
1: You're very welcome, and thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the new year. Hopefully, a happy one for all of us. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.